sorry, Mom. What started the ruckus, anyway? He got me fooling around in his makeup box, copying one of his faces. He's got a thousand of them. But you should have heard him. What'd you say? Huh? A thousand faces. Thalberg's been after me to start a new advertising campaign. The man of a thousand faces. How's that? Son, if I get a raise, I'm going to give you half. Uh, make it a new fishing rod. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. My name is Jeff Kelly. This is the first Monday of the month, so that means we're going to talk about a film that is based on a true story. In this case, we'll look at the 1957 semi-biographical film, Man of a Thousand Faces, a film about the legendary silent film star Lon Chaney. How much of this film is based on a true story, and how much is based on, well, creative storytelling? Well, you know, I think most people know that this film leans more towards fiction than fact. The film opens with the words, On August 27th, 1930, the entire motion picture industry suspended work to pay tribute to the memory of one of its greatest actors. Well, I guess that's true, but in my opinion, telling his story accurately would have been more of a tribute, but hey, that's just me. Next, and this made me laugh a bit, a limo arrives at the studio and Robert Evans, playing the part of Irving Thalberg, gets out. Right away, somebody yells, Mr. Thalberg! And another says, Irving! Yep, we get it. We know who it is. Thank you. Such a one was Lon Chaney. With his God-given talent, he did more than just portray a thousand faces. He illuminated certain dark corners of the human spirit. He showed the world the souls of those people who were born different from the rest. After a quick speech, we fade to a young boy. Lon Chaney, who has just been in a fight. I don't know, he's about eight at this point, and he goes home to his parents who are deaf and mute. This is all pretty accurate. Lon's maternal grandfather, Jonathan Ralston Kennedy, founded the Colorado School for the Education of Mutes, and that's where his parents met. Chaney would, however, say that he had a reasonably happy childhood. He played football and baseball and had many friends. Of course, and this has been said many times, that growing up with deaf-mute parents was a great training ground for a silent actor. He learned from an early age to communicate without words. I also read that Lana didn't even talk for the first few years of his life. The film jumps ahead with Lon now as an actor in vaudeville. His wife, Frances Cleveland Creighton, who he calls Cleveland, with him. How he got there is never explained, but quickly, when he was 15, his father arranged for him to be a carpet layer. When a hotel named The Antlers burned down in 1898, a newer, grander one was built. Lon helped install the carpets. Soon he was employed at the hotel's opera house as a stagehand, And shortly after his 19th birthday, he began appearing on stage. 
And I guess once he got the acting bug, it never left. Now back to the film. Chaney and Cleva are married and working together, which again is accurate. They had met in Oklahoma City in 1905. She was a 16-year-old singer with a wonderful voice but couldn't dance. Lon began trying to teach her, but apparently she failed miserably. They were married very shortly after. Now, when the two were divorced in 1913, Lon changed the date of their marriage and the date of his son's birth, making their wedding a year earlier and the boy's birth a year later. Some wonder if this is because, well, she got pregnant before they were married, something that would have been scandalous in the early 20th century. But her being pregnant leads to what is probably a large work of fiction. The fact that Lon fails to tell her that his parents were deaf and mute until that dramatic Christmas dinner in which she finds out and all hell breaks loose. Was it that hard to look at them, Cleva? I couldn't stand it. Why, because they're different? Because they can't speak? Does that make them freaks? Don't shout, Lon. They can't hear me! What did you expect of me? That I was going to accept things all in a minute? You grew up with them. They've talked to me all my life. With their hands. Yes, I can hear them. I've always heard them. Then ask them about my baby. I can find no evidence that this ever happened. In fact, I read that Cleva had met Cheney's parents on more than one occasion. So while there might have been some concern, maybe, that their child would be born deaf, I don't think it was ever like it was portrayed in the film, though it made for a nice story. The couple actually gave up theater life while she was pregnant, Lon taking a job in a furniture store in Oklahoma City. Now, Creighton Cheney's birth, the boy who would later be known as Lon Cheney Jr., in the film, it happens at a hospital in which Lon and the doctor have to explain to Cleva that just because the baby cried doesn't mean that he is not deaf. Now, the actual story of Creighton's birth is a bit of a mystery. Cheney Jr. would later tell the story of him being born in a cold log cabin, two months premature, lifeless in black and blue. He only weighed a couple of pounds. Cheney Sr. took the small child outside, broke some ice in a river, and plunged him into the icy water, and that revived him. This is the way it's reported most of the time. However, it might not be true. According to Lon's grandson, Lon Ralph Cheney, and Cleva's daughter that she had from a second marriage, Stella George, it was complete fiction. You can make up your own mind, I guess. But soon after Junior's birth, Cheney went back to work at the Oklahoma City Delamar Gardens doing a variety of musical comedies. In the Oklahoma City Times, a journalist gave a review of one of his performances. Cheney, as the Prince Lorenzo, was a decided hit. Mr. Cheney is a professional, formerly with the Columbia Opera Company, and made a host of friends last year at the Delmar Gardens. His work was of the highest order, and the comedy scenes between him and Charles Pryor were great. While it is known their work would be good, it was a delightful surprise to find the comedy so amusing. Now back to the film. In the film, the couple live in an isolated cabin somewhere, and Cleva gets lonely and frustrated, while Cheney goes out and works as an actor on the stage. She eventually sneaks out and begins to work as a singer. 
Now, I have to admit, while I watched this film, I was saying to myself, Lon, stop being such a dick. I mean, to me, he was acting like a jerk. He wants his wife to stay home and raise the boy, and she wants to have a career and such. And he offers no understanding at all of the way she's feeling. All right, I'm working. I took a job. I'm singing at Lakes. What about Creighton? I found a woman, a wonderful woman. She'll come in the morning and be with him till I get up, and then she'll stay till you come home at night, except Thursdays. What do we do on Thursdays? Give him a dime, let him go on to town? You can take him to the theater with you. Oh, don't make it sound so awful. But that's in the film. In reality, Lon and Cleva return to the stage together after their child's birth, usually with Lon acting and Cleva singing in the chorus. Lon spent the next few years as a struggling actor, but even though he received great reviews, he was not the success that he had been hoping for. In the film, we see Cleva becoming a successful singer and cheating on Lon. And Lon meets and becomes a close platonic friend with Hazel, whom years later he would meet and she would become his second wife. This is actually close to accurate. Cleva was becoming a bigger name than Lon, and some think that this might have led to a problem with Cheney. His jealousy over her career might have led to tensions between the two of them. They liked me tonight. And I like their liking me. It's what I want to do. Maybe when the boy's older. How much older, Lon? When? How tall must he be? I'm sick of being alone, never seeing anyone. Sometimes I get the feeling that Creighton and I are the only two people in the world. I am home every minute I can be. Only to be with your son, not me. I might as well be a thousand miles away. And it is true that he met Hazel at this point. How close they were at the time, and was it totally platonic? Who really knows? And it's also true that Hazel had an ex-husband who had no legs. I will say that Hazel Hastings didn't look anything like Jane Greer, who played her in the film. Cleva did dramatically swallow a vial of bichloride of mercury when Lon was on stage. Wait a minute! What are you doing? Cleo! Get that curtain down! This is true. But unlike the film, in which she has been missing for days, then arrives at the theater, in truth, they had been backstage before Lon went on arguing. Here is a news story from the Los Angeles Daily Times reporting it from May 1st, two days after the tragic events. Dutch comedians were cavorting on the stage of the Majestic Theater to the merriments of the audience last night when Cleva Creighton, a cabaret singer, behind the scenes swallowed the contents of a vial of bichloride of mercury after a misunderstanding with her husband, L.F. Cheney, stage manager for the theater. She was taken to the receiving hospital where heroic treatment saved her life. Mrs. Creighton, who is 23 years old, and who resides with her husband at the Percival Apartments, number 845 South Hill Street, is employed in one of the downtown cafes as an entertainer. She went to the Majestic Theater last night to talk to her husband. The two had a dispute over Cheney's joining the Kolb and Dill forces and touring with them as stage director. She objected to the change. 
According to her story, she walked on the stage behind the scenes where Kolb and Dill were hilariously performing in front. Chaney, she said, ordered her off the stage. She rushed to the dressing room. The crowd in front was roaring with laughter, she said, when she lifted the vial of bichloride of mercury and drained the contents with suicidal intent. And the Los Angeles Herald had its own version. The singer is the wife of Lon Chaney, stage manager of the Majestic Company. Disagreements resulted from Chaney's determination to go on the road with the company when it leaves Los Angeles. At their apartment, 845 South Hill Street, Cheney said today that the near tragedy was a terrible mistake. It is true we quarreled, he said, but my wife had no intention of attempting suicide. She believed she was swallowing medicine. Our differences are all straightened out now. But it wasn't so. Like shown in the film, Cleva's vocal cords were damaged to the point where she could no longer sing anymore, and the couple soon divorced. At the trial, Lan charged her with adultery, claiming she was having an affair with a bartender named Charles Osmond. Cheney also claimed that Cleva was unfit to have care and custody of the child. Cleva, he said, was guilty of habitual intemperance from the use of intoxicating drinks, and that Cleva inflicted great mental anguish on her husband. They also produced a letter that Cleva wrote to a lover. When the divorce was final, Lon was given full custody to Cretan, and after, it was Lon who placed his son in a private home for children of divorced parents. I don't believe it was actually a court order as shown in the film. In this way, Cretan could get a real education, something that he had been lacking for the first seven years of his life, and I suspect that Lon knew it would be difficult for him to care for his son while continuing to try to make it as an actor. But like in the film, he did visit his son every Sunday. Now we come to another fabrication of the film. Cretan never saw his mother after the divorce and grew up thinking his mother had died. He wouldn't find out until after his father's death that she was still alive. That's a big part of the film, that the young man would be visited by his raspy-voiced mother and that he would visit her. What do you mean by that? I'll tell you what I mean. I saw her today. My mother. My real mother. Why did you lie to me, Pop? Why did you tell me she was dead? Son, you've got to understand. I understand. I understand you lied to me. I understand that much. She ran out on you when you were a baby. As far as we were concerned, she was dead. I was just trying to protect you. Were you, Pop? In the film, Lon kicks him out of the house and he lives with his mother for a while. But that never happened. Now we get to a bit of frustration on my research. I couldn't find any information about Lon Chaney Jr. and his mother, though somebody on Facebook posted a picture of Lon Chaney with Cleva together in their later years, and I assume it's real. It would be nice to think that they reconnected. Now, very little is actually known about Chaney's introduction into making films. He might have worked as an extra even before his divorce, but no one's really sure. Records of extras weren't kept, and most of those early films that he may or may not have been in are lost forever. And with the makeup he wore, you would never know if it was him or not. Now, once he was a successful actor, he did marry Hazel Hastings, the chorus girl that he knew from his early days. 
but she didn't come to his home with the help of his manager and offer to marry him as a way to get Cretan out of the boy's home. It is believed that they met again when Hazel was performing at a tavern on Spring Street in downtown Los Angeles. At the time, Lon lived only a few blocks away. They were soon married, and Cretan came to live with them. Now, one reason, perhaps, some of the events in Cheney's life is so vague was he was a very private person. He even wrote his own studio biography, and he self-fictionalized his own life story. In it, he lists Hazel as his first wife and the mother of his son. Reporter Adelia Rogers St. John wrote an article in around 1950 where she interviewed Cheney's first wife, who was working as a dishwasher at the time. She wrote, What could I do? She said to me years later. I didn't have a penny. I didn't know where Lon and the boy were. The stuff I'd taken did something to my vocal cords. When I tried to get a job, I opened my mouth and couldn't sing a note. Lon didn't know about that. I never envied him his success. I never felt bitter. I used to sit in a movie theater and watch him on the screen. I was proud of him. I figured the boy was better off with him. Only I thought Lon might let me see him, but he never answered any of my letters. And then I heard he married again. Now, I even found an ad she placed in the paper in April of 1914, begging Lon to let her see her son. It's sort of heartbreaking to read. Now, in the film, Lon is already a huge star when he meets Hazel again. I think, in reality, when they reunite, he was still struggling. But, of course, he did rise to fame as one of the most successful actors of the silent era, with films like The Miracle Man in 1919, Phantom of the Opera from 1925, The Unholy Three in 1925, The Unknown from 1927, London After Midnight, also in 1927, Laugh, Clown, Laugh in 1928, and his only sound film, the remake of The Unholy Three in 1930. I'm not going to really talk too much about his film career. After all, the movie didn't either. By the way, if you have a copy of London After Midnight, give me a call. It's considered one of the most sought-after lost films, and we could make a fortune. Anyway, it is true that Lon was dying of bronchial lung cancer during the filming of a sound version of The Unholy Three. Now, in the film, he's back at his cabin out in the woods. His estranged son surprised him by being there, and the two go fishing. How's your mother? She's fine. I think you should know she was against my leaving you. Pop, she was working on a farm, cooking for 30 men. I, I couldn't leave her there. I had to take care of her. Yeah, I know. I should have been proud of you. But instead, I kept scheming myself up to stay mad. You know how I am. I don't let go easy. But I'm learning. Hazel is there, and she's doing the cooking. But suddenly, Lon collapses. He's carried to the bed. Moments before he dies, he takes his makeup case and adds the word Junior to his own name, letting Creighton know that it's all right to change his name to Lon Chaney Jr. and start an acting career. I don't think so. Lon was receiving aggressive treatment for his cancer, but his condition gradually worsened. He died of a throat hemorrhage on August 23, 1930 in a Los Angeles, California hospital. 
not in a log cabin. And the truth is, the young Cheney did want to be an actor and his father was against it. But it was only after his father's death and the country's depression left him out of work and he was broke that he turned to acting. But the last thing he wanted to be called was Lon Chaney Jr. He started acting in 1931, billed under Creighton Chaney. He got some small roles, but no one in Hollywood really seemed that interested in him or his acting career. And by 1934, he was still struggling. And then Universal Studios offered him a contract, but only if he changed his name to Lon Chaney Jr., something he said he was always embarrassed by. But now I'm going to take a little break, and Russell is here to tell you a little bit about the younger Chaney. Lon Chaney Jr. was born in Creighton Chaney in 1906. He almost died at birth, but his father plunged him into an icy lake outside his cabin and shocked him into life, then kept him in a homemade incubator. Lon did not want his son following him to showbiz and did not make it glamorous or attractive to him, and young Creighton saw the pain his father went through his various movie makeups. At the time Lon Chaney died, Creighton was a successful plumber but the inroads of the Depression made him try his luck in the movies in 1932. Initially, he acted under his real name, but used assumed names for extra stunt and fight work, sometimes working on multiple movies a day. He had a stock contract with RKO, but it expired in 1935, and after a lengthy period of no work, he started acting as Lon Chaney Jr. He got a contract with 20th Century Fox and appeared in small roles in dozens of films, but of his first marriage failing and then a new wife, by 1939 he was broke. His luck changed, however, when he was cast in the West Coast stage version of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. As the simple-minded hulking Lenny, and then in Lewis Milestone's film version, along with Burgess Meredith, made at the Hellroach Studios. Lon Chaney Jr. was not a great actor, but he's really good as Lenny, and you should try and see this film if you hadn't previously. He then appeared in Roach's prehistoric epic, One Million Years B.C., and hopes to star in the remakes of his father's hits, Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera, but lost out to Charles Lawton and Claude Rains. Universal, however, had decided that Chaney Jr. was ideal for a new cycle of horror movies it was making, and in 1941 cast him in the classic The Wolfman. Unlike the predatory Dracula or hulking Frankenstein monster, Chaney's Wolfman had genuine pathos as his Larry Talbot character is a good man transformed into a werewolf after an attack from an afflicted gypsy, played by Bela Lugosi, and is unable to stop himself from attacking innocent people, until his father, played by Claude Rains, hits him with a silver-tipped cane. Incidentally, as, as Chaney was 6 foot 2 inches and Claude Rains about 5 foot 4, one wonders what Mrs Talbot must have been like. Like his real father, Lon Jr. had agonising hours in the makeup chair, as Universal makeup wizard Jack Pierce spent hours applying yak hairs to him, strand by strand, for the transformation scenes, which are highly effective even today. He became well acquainted with Mr. Pierce as Universal put him through their monster mill, having him play Dracula's son, the Frankenstein monster, and the mummy. 
the Wolfman Return Frankenstein vs. the Wolfman, then the Monster Fest, House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. And Chaney was also in a series of movies based on the radio horror series in a sanctum. He also appeared in other Universal movies between the horror roles, but these were poor B-pictures for the most part, and he soon tired of the studio. His contract ran out in 1946, and he then found work as a supporting actor in both prestigious and B-grade productions. He returned to Universal and The Wolfman in 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, and scored some good roles in Stanley Kramer's High Noon, Not as a Stranger and the Defiant Ones, but also appeared in low-budget clunkers like Bride of the Gorilla, Black Castle, and The Black Sleep. He sold his father's life story to Universal in 1955, where it became Man of a Thousand Faces, and unsurprisingly was appalled by its inaccuracy, but he did like Cagney's portrayal of his father. Universal also released their back catalogue of horror films, and low-budget producers like Roger Corman cast Cheney and other old horror stars on the strength of this because their names look good in a TV guide cast. Some of these, like The Haunted Palace, were effective, but as the 60s continued, he made a downward spiral of movies like Dr. Terror's Gallery of Horror, which I thought was the worst movie ever until things like Plan 9 Robot Monster and Manos started turning up. This was offset by frequent TV appearances on everything from Wagon Train to the Monkeys, but his most notable role was on Route 66 in a special Halloween episode, Lizard Leg and Owlet's Wing, where Chaney Jr., Boris Karloff and Peter Lorre donned their old horror roles to prove the old monsters still have the power to scare. Chaney appeared not only as the Wolfman as the Mummy, but also as Quasimodo as a tribute to his father. His career was affected adversely by his heavy drinking. He told directors to get everything you can out of me by 1pm because after that I can't guarantee anything. Robert Stack claimed in his 1980 autobiography that Chaney and his drinking buddy Broderick Crawford were known as the monsters around the Universal Pictures lot because a lot of their drunken behaviour frequently resulted in bloodshed. Famous Monsters editor and legendary fan Forry Ackerman recalled a banquet of the Count Dracula Society where Chaney was the guest of honour. Forry was worried because Lon hadn't eaten anything and just kept drinking and knew from experience that Lon was blotto in the afternoons, but made an introductory speech and Lon appeared on the podium to a standing ovation. This really touched him and he asked the crowd if they wanted him to do Lenny. Of course they said yes and he became that powerful figure from of mice and men and it brought a tear to everyone's eye to see how good he could be when he tried. Lon Chaney Jr. contracted the same throat cancer that killed his father, as well as several other serious ailments, and Forey orchestrated a letter-writing campaign to allow his fans to tell Lon how much they loved him, which touched him deeply. He died on 13th of July 1973 at the age of 67. A 1997 series of United States postage stamps depicting movie monsters featured him as the Wolfman, with his father as the Phantom of the Opera, along with Bela Lugosi as Dracula, and Karloff with two stamps as Frankenstein's monster and the original mummy. In 1999, a golden palm star on the Palm Strings California Walker Stars was dedicated to Lon. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Russell. And yeah, I've always wondered about that. He was so good in Of Mice and Men. I always wondered what would have happened if he attempted to be a more serious actor instead of following in the footsteps of his dad doing the horror thing. But I don't think the studio would have let him do anything but horror. And of course, his alcoholism 
affected him later on. You know, one of my favorite of his later movies is one called Spider Baby. I've got the deluxe DVD of it, and on the commentary, director Jack Hill talks about the fact that Lon really wanted to make a good movie there, and he gave up drinking just for that film so he could put on a good performance. And it's a very strange movie, and and one we might talk about on this podcast in the future. So anyway, thanks a lot, Russell. Now back to me. That's a very startling makeup. You wanted to see me? Yes, yes. How much? How much to leave us alone? Nothing, Lon. I don't want a thing from you. You've done a good job of raising him, you and Hazel. He's fine. Don't give me that. You came back for something. I wanted to see him. Was that so terrible? Wanting to see my son again? Your son? You have to care for something to make it yours. You never even wanted it. Come on, come on, let's have it. How much? Please. You know, until I watched this again recently, I didn't know that Robert Evans played Irving Thalberg, and I thought that was sort of strange considering right now I'm reading the book Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli, which is about the making of The Godfather. And, of course, a lot of that story has to deal with Robert Evans battling Francis Coppola. Anyway, one issue I have with the film is James Cagney. I never buy him as Lon Chaney. He looks so unlike Chaney that it's hard for me to imagine him as that person. There's even one scene where he's about to go on stage and he does that little shoulder lift thing that he does when he plays a gangster. I realize that he was a song and dance man like Chaney, but still. And it's odd because I bought him as Cohan in Yankee Doodle Dandy, so I admit that just could be me. And the makeup is wrong in this film as well both while making The Phantom of the Opera and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, it almost appears that Cagney is wearing some sort of latex mask, something Cheney would never do. Now, at this point in the show, I often talk about my favorite scene in a film, but I really didn't have one with this one. I can't think of one part of this film that really stuck in my head, one moment that said, wow, that's fantastic. I guess if I had to pick something, it would be the scenes where they show him making one of his classic films. And you know what? I could have used more of those. Now, Dorothy Malone plays Cleva, and she's great, but Malone's always great, isn't she? Have you ever seen her small part in the film The Big Sleep? Sexiest scene in any movie. But here, her character is so damn unlikable. It's as if the filmmakers want us to hate her badly, especially in the first half of the film. It's this place. It's like being buried. No one around, nobody to talk to. Why couldn't we have stayed in the city like everybody else in the show? With some life, some excitement. Or would that have been too normal? Is that it, Lon? Are you trying to get me used to the silence? Then I guess we're supposed to sympathize with her in the later part. And, you know, within the film, I put the blame for most of what happened early on on Chaney. I mean, it starts with him not telling her about his parents, and then later keeping her isolated away from everything in a cabin or whatever. And then he even gets her fired from her job as a singer. What an ass. You had me fired. Damn you! Damn you! Damn you! And of course, as we discussed, all of that was fiction. Cleveland and Cheney were working together when it all went down. 
Here's an article from the Los Angeles Evening Express dated April 29, 1913, just a month before Cleva's attempted suicide. The return engagement for a limited period of Cleva Cretan, saucy singing soubrette, who first played at the cabaret show exactly six months ago, is the event of interest at Brink's Cafe this week. The popular singer has just returned from San Francisco, where she has been featured in the cabaret show, and only comes to Los Angeles because of the fact that her husband, Lon Chaney, comedian, is here with Colbin Dill for a short engagement. Oh, and I have to say really quickly, I find it amusing that they always refer to Lon Chaney as a comedian, considering the horror films he would make later. Now, Jane Greer as Hazel is fantastic. And though she looks nothing like the real Hazel, it's okay because we're not familiar with what the real Hazel Hastings looks like, so the film can get away with that. In the film, maybe her character is just, I don't know, a little bit too perfect, you know what I mean? And I thought the scene where Jim Backus as Clarence brings Hazel to Cheney is a bit weird or just awkward. Why can't I get my son back? Well, Lon, here's the answer. A pretty woman who could be the boy's new mother. And before she enters, while Clarence and Cheney are talking, was she just waiting outside, ready to make her dramatic entrance? I don't know. It was weird. Uh, Lon, I, uh, I forgot to tell you I asked a girl to stop by. I should have mentioned it before. Hope you don't mind. Well, if you think it's suitable home to bring a girl to, uh, go ahead. That's all right. I'll, I'll go catch him. Oh, no, no. No, it's, uh, it's nothing like that. Hello, Lon. I think the story would have been a lot more dramatic this way. Have Lon go to the club where she's working without knowing she's there. I could imagine him walking in all down and depressed, needing a drink sitting there, slowly sipping a beer or something, and then looking up, seeing her on stage. His face lights up. She comes over. They talk. They laugh. They get married. Jane Greer, by the way, is in one of my favorite film noirs, Jack Tenner's Out of the Past with Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. When I think about it, if this was reality, Cheney was first married to Malone and then to Greer. Hey, that's not too bad. Interestingly, Cheney's sister is played by Kegney's sister, Gina Kegney. Gina was an actor in film, stage, and TV. I think she also played in Yankee Doodle Dandy, again as Cheney's character's sister. Now, although I've talked about the many flaws of this film, I actually do like it. I hadn't watched it for years before watching it for this episode and found myself totally watching it, not being bored at all, though sometimes rolling my eyes. But let's find out what some others think of this film, and for that, it's Rotten Tomatoes time. It gets a 76% audience score, which is not great, but not bad for a film of this age. Brandon A. gave it 5 out of 5 stars, and he wrote, Such an amazing film. James Cagney does a wonderful job of portraying Lon Chaney. Although there are some inaccuracies, I would certainly recommend this film to anyone. Some inaccuracies, Brandon? Okay. By the way, you used the wrong version of the word there, but I'll let that go. I hate to be one of those guys. 
Kim P. gave it five stars, and she wrote, An amazing film. Cagney does an amazing job with the role of Chaney, and the depiction of Chaney's most famous costumes are incredibly true to the original form. I thought the choice of Robert Evans as Irving Thalberg to string the film together was an interesting and incredibly true-to-life one if you don't research too much into Evans. One of my favorite all-time films. Kim, I like how you mentioned if you don't research too much. How true. Justin R. gave it two stars, and he wrote, Hokey, and probably the most made up. James Cagney is good, but he can't make this more than just tolerable. Hokey, yes, Justin, but just tolerable? I don't know. Joshua L. gave it one star, and he wrote, I didn't like it at all, but I really wanted to. Parts of the musical score were excellent, though. I think he meant though, but he spelled it D-O-H, so, um. Mike K. Graver gave it only a half star. He said, It's a sappy and factually horrific bio of the greatest performer of all time. Avoid it like the plague! Avoid it like the plague, really? It's just a movie, not an infectious disease, Mike. Jeez. Stacy also gave it one star, and she wrote, As a fan of Cheney, I felt insulted watching this piece of crap. Lon Cheney would suffer for his art. We need more people like him and less people who want to milk a story for a dollar. I will point out that in Cheney's early film career, he quit one studio because he thought he wasn't paid enough. So I think earning a dollar meant a little to Lon as well. Oddly, while working on this, I more and more felt sorry for his first wife, Cleva. Yes, she had messed up, but not being able to ever see her son again, it seemed like she spent the rest of her life regretting it. The film gives a lot better outcome for her than in real life. The film has her reconnect with the boy and all that, and they spend time together, something that I guess might have happened after Cheney died, I'm not 100% sure. But as far as Cleva goes, I think one has to keep in mind that no one really knows what went on those days behind the scenes. No one really knows what led up to her attempted suicide. I mean, we can only assume. One last thing. After Lon is a huge actor, married to Hazel, and taking a vacation at his cabin, his parents come for a visit. There's a scene in which Lon looks on by the fireplace at Hazel and his mother who are paging through some sort of book, probably a photo album or scrapbook. And the thing is, Cheney's mother died when he was going through his divorce. Maybe I'm just nitpicking. A wizard's ancient spell. Into the eyes of the dragon and the despair. And the lust of a lord. I must have her. One night with her. Give birth to an empire. Behold, the sword of power, Excalibur. Excalibur, sword of power, sword of kings. A little bit before I go. You know, I was glad to read that Cleva ended up remarried with a daughter. I can only hope she had a happy life in the end. 
Yeah, she made some mistakes, but I think she paid for those mistakes. A lot of the information on today's show was from the 1993 book Lon Chaney, The Man Behind the Thousand Faces by Michael F. Blake. And Russell also provided me some information too, so thanks Russell. Hey, do you have any thoughts on Lon Chaney or his son or the film Man of a Thousand Faces? Did I get anything wrong? It could be. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. You can send them to daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of Celluloid, all being one word. Email me with your thoughts, opinions, suggestions, or even just to say hi. You can use our Facebook page, it's called the Celluloid Days. Or our Twitter page, it's at celluloid underscore days. Next week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite films, and that's Excalibur by John Borman. Fantastic film. Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next Monday. Take care. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano?